Hello, everyone, and welcome to So Very Wrong About Games, a board gaming podcast about board games. With me is my dear friend, Michael Walker. How are you doing, Walker? Fantastic, Mark. How are you doing? I'm very well. I am Mark Bigney. I'm your other co-host. A little bit of follow-up from our much-commented-on episode about updating the canon. And we'd just like to reiterate something. We tried to make very, very clear, but a lot of people are just responding online to a geek list that a listener made of the canon, and some people are responding out of context or might not have... There are lots of great games that we both like that don't quite make it to the level of the canon. So there's a whole lot of, well, what about this? What about that? Another one that comes up frequently is, why no Spirit Island? Walker doesn't like Spirit Island. That's why it's not in the canon. That's why I didn't bring it up. The conditions of re- for being entered into the canon are something that we both very much enjoy. The perennials, the, the things that we keep going back to. And so you can still be very, very excellent. You can even be some of one of our favorite games. It just doesn't make the cut. Such is the way of things. It was it was heartbreaking, really. Yes, like when we know it's a game that we like just because it's us. That too. Like yeah. a Xeno shift or a game like that. And and yeah. we and we don't want to uh lead people down a wrong path. <laughs> <laughs> wow, that's a strong statement. Like we would corrupt them with Xeno Shift. I maintain Xeno Shift gets a bad rap. I don't think we like it just on idiosyncratic grounds. I, I I would actually recommend it to people, but sure. I respect your your reasons for wanting it to get off the cannon because after all just to, to reiterate something that I said before, either one of us wields an absolute veto on being included in the canon. So there you have it. Agreed. And plus, I'll take any opportunity to say canon a whole bunch more. So this is a board gaming podcast about board games. We're going to talk about the games we played last week. We're going to talk about the news and why it doesn't matter. And then our feature game this week, back on crowdfunding, is going to be Through the Desert by Reiner Knizia, a game which I believe is pretty much review-proof. Anyway, Walker, what did you play last week? Mark, we got to play a game called Iki with its new expansion that adds a bridge, Akibono. It adds a whole space. Uh, it's sort of a, Iki is a sort of Rondell type game. You're moving around and you're activating all these different stalls, but now we have an extra space. But sometimes we felt as though this, you know, you know, slowed the game down. But I think they added more sandal spaces and more upgrading your innkeeper spaces to sort of offshoot that if we sort of reflected upon the game. It's tough to tell. So Icky is a game where you're putting out these shopkeepers and part of the dynamism of Icky is that your shopkeepers can retire. Every time certain things happen in the game, they advance up on their own individual age track and then eventually they leave the, the, the main board and just sit on your player board. You no longer need to feed them and they keep providing their income but it also frees you up in terms of being able to sign up, sign up more people because you are limited to having four cards on the board at any given time because that's the number of wooden figures you have. And every time you put out a card, whether it's a building, which we seldom do, or a stall, it requires a figure. And we spent, all of us, several turns in succession, completely unable to purchase new cards or do much of anything with respect to developing the board and developing our own personal standing by virtue of the fact that all of our figures were tied up. And it was actually Huey that posited that it's possibly because the extra space adds a further delay to various thresholds that cause the figures to advance on the track and therefore retirement was happening less often. And I think he's right. I honestly believe that it kind of dilutes the central tension. Now, it is hard to expand a lot of Euro games. And Icky is no exception. And so, as you say, what they've done is they've grown the rondelle. Fortunately, they don't fall victim to one of the very common traps of such expansions, which is we've added this other board 
off to the side over there. And everyone forgets about it until the end of the game. Here, instead, it was just that the core elements of the game were being were, were, were in effect being diluted. We knew about the other spaces. They were right there. There was no way to miss it. But by virtue of the inclusion of all the other some of the other interesting stuff was happening less often. I, I strongly disliked the expansion, at least based on, on the first play. I've never been a huge fan of Icky. I think it's okay. Uh, but I don't think that what Icky needed was less dynamism and more turns where you couldn't do anything. True. I don't think it really added enough to to warrant it. It did add some, like you said, the extra boards, but that was mostly just to clean up. Now there's not just, you know, card pools all around the board. Now they're at like distinct spots and it did something that sort of, uh, it's a wonderful world did with its extra cards, you know, having a side hand, what it did was it had its own little sort of side pool. So you were definitely going to see the newer stalls than you would the old ones. Yeah. None of us bought any of them. No. And this one, yeah, one, and this wasn't a function of them being off to the side. You're right. It was very much there. The distribution was set so that it was introduced. But the thing is, there's not a huge variety in the effects of what stalls do in Icky, which is fine. I, I, I don't need every Euro to have a sprawlingly endless list of effects. You get money, resources, points, or fire prevention. That's pretty much it. And there's not a whole lot of ways to play with those combinations. And so it's, it's somewhat unsurprising that the core game personnel were more than adequate to the task. And so, again, I, I felt that the expansion didn't really add much. I mean, yes, it was nice to have that sideboard to organize everything. That was that was a pleasant cosmetic upgrade. But as far as the boats are concerned, and as far as all the new cards, I felt it was largely unnecessary. And furthermore, as a consequence of the fact that there was so little action in terms of the stalls, what that did was it doubled down on, I think, some of the less interesting parts of Icky, namely scoring points for fish and scoring points for tobacco, which is just, you get some money and you buy some points. You get some money, you buy some points, yeah. you get some money, you buy some points. That's all I did. It doubled down on it because it adds yet another spot where you can buy it. It was very yep. tight in the original game. There yep. was only you know, one place. There was risk involved. You had, to, you had to be careful to get there before anybody else because if you missed out on the fish on the season, those, those were the only fish available or the same thing with the tobacco. But as, more supply, more places to get them. And so what it, what it ended up feeling was that it made the, the competitive aspects of Icky suddenly became vastly more simple while there were more rules cruft elements. And so I think it just tipped the balance way off in, in the wrong direction in both ways. Well, the thought process might have been we want to focus more on the harmony scoring where the original, the, the stalls were cycling out so fast, you couldn't really set up a combination of stalls. Whereas if you slowed that down a little bit, then you, then placing of the stalls would be much more important. Possibly. I'd have to sit down and look at the relative value that various things generated over the course of our game of Icky with the Akibono expansion. You might be right. Because what the harmony bonus is at the end of every round, you sort of score the whole district. And depending on how you place different colored stalls, it's going to score a certain number of points. Anyway, as I say, Icky is something I'm perfectly willing to play. Uh, it is, I think it is fair to say you are much more fond of it than I am. With whatever little enthusiasm I have about Icky, I felt that the expansion sapped it considerably. So I would personally, uh, next time I would I, I would be asked to play with, uh, Icky, I would request that the expansion not be included. But of course, uh, I'm a member of a society and therefore occasionally have to yield to the desires of others, much as I keep whining that that shouldn't be the case. And that's Icky, designed by Kuta Yamada and published by Sari, we're French.
I get to play Inhuman Conditions. This is a review copy we got from the designer. Inhuman Conditions is a two-player role-playing board game that is essentially the Voight Comp test from Blade Runner. One player plays as the investigator, and one player plays as either a human or a robot. In both cases, they wish to pass as human, and the investigator wishes to correctly identify whether or not the person is a human or a robot. This is all done through a variety of shockingly effective rules. The robot has a series of conversational quirks that they have to internalize, and every time they're violated, they then have to perform a penalty. And the interviewer knows what the penalty is, but they don't know what the quirks are. And so the job of the interviewer is to ask enough leading questions to try to make sure that the robot is forced, well, the potential subject, is covering as much ground as possible and trying to observe any verbal or behavioral abnormalities that the subject is exhibiting. In other words, it's shockingly uh, uh, evocative of what such a test might actually look like. I suggested because I was playing with somebody with a improv background and who also does tabletop role-playing games as well as board games. And so I thought he'd take to it very well. And I was unprepared for how good he was at developing a character on very little basis. And the problem was uh, he was making, he, he pulled one background. Every character has a background. He chose Dean of a Clown College. And he played, he invented this sort of quintessential straight man character who explained that, well, my background is in running small to medium-sized post-secondary institutions, and I just happened to end up at this particular facility, despite the fact that I am told that I have no sense of humor. And he keeps going on and on in this monotone about how his, his, uh, his fellow faculty keep hitting him with cream pies, and he keeps telling them that he doesn't find it funny. And Anyway, so I was laughing, but the entire time I thought... He's trying to distract me. He's trying... I Like, I became so paranoid because I started wondering, did he just fulfill the penalty? I don't know. I was too busy laughing at his delivery. It was great. It was a... It was, and it's a marvelous production. Uh, so this is designed by Tommy Morangis and Corey O'Brien. Tommy Morangis is uh, one of the people who's involved in the uh, uh, Secret Hitler family of designers. There's a series of rotating... And, and the publishing philosophy behind a lot of these people is that they're going to make everything available freely as print and play, but the retail version that you can buy from them is going to be gloriously overproduced, but nonetheless in a small box. So anybody who's seen uh, an actual copy of Secret Hitler, despite my misgivings of the game... It's a very lovely production. Foil embossed tiles, lovely little envelopes, cool wooden placards to identify who the president and the prime minister are. And Inhuman Conditions is the same way. It comes with actual stamps and forms that you have to fill out as part of the intake process. And a lot of the visual design is great. There's a magnetic clasp on the board. We love magnetic clasps oh, on, on, so on boards and boxes. It's a really, really great experience. I'm, I'm always disappointed that I don't go back to it too often. There's a, a common failing that some people exhibit when playing in Human Conditions, and that is they get too wrapped up in the character and start behaving in very, very strange ways, causing the investigator to make a false positive and believing they're a robot. But they're like, no, 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 I was just leaning into this elaborate backstory that I had written in my head. It's like, well, that's great. You didn't let me know about it, and so I thought you were just being weird. Anyway... Inhuman Conditions, for what it's worth, is probably the best intersection of role-playing and board game that I've ever experienced. Uh, a game that was actually brought up by the person I was playing was Fog of Love. Fog of Love, I think, is an example of a sort of collaborative storytelling experience that is better as a storytelling experience than a board game. Because sometimes the quality of the story is at odds with the victory conditions that the board game is telling you to fulfill. I've got no problem with that. I'm not the stinker who's going to sit in the corner and say, well, we should be playing to win. We should maximize... No, 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 no. By all means, tell the better story if you want to. But what I'm saying is, 
just like as I constantly talk about in terms of dexterity games, have a fun toy, but I'm going to prefer the toy that's equally a fun toy, but also has rigorous victory conditions and has gamified the fun toy in a superior way. Inhuman Conditions, for my money, is the best intersection of improv, role-playing, and board game elements in terms of victory conditions that I have yet encountered. It only lasts five minutes. The rules are a little crunchy at first, but once you internalize them, things move very, very, very quickly. And it's got a glorious physical presence. And everybody who's seen Blade Runner knows the Void Comp test, or at least the principle involved. And so it's marvelously approachable in terms of theme in that sense. Inhuman Conditions is a winner. I'm always sad that I don't get to play it more often, but there's there, there's some people who don't like to perform even in that context, and that's okay. It, 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 it's alright. And it's a two-player game, and it's hard to get two-player games to the table with our hobby lifestyles. But highly, highly, highly recommended. You can check it out online. If you want to give it a try in the print-and-play version, I highly recommend it. Inhuman Conditions. Speaking of games that are a masterclass of their sort of genre, Flick Fleet we got to play. This is a dexterity game where you're flicking the dice and what the dice land on actually matter. And so you have these acrylic ships that you flick around the table as well. And then you place a die on them and you try to flick it at your opponent. And you have to hit their ship without it going off of the table. And I think it's just the right balance of rules grit to dexterity that's out there. It's also got a marvelous physicality to it. So the prettiest version, the deluxe version, this is by Eurydice Games, and Eurydice Games is just a couple of people with an acrylic laser cutter. And the deluxe version has these lovely etching, like the name of the ship on it and ship little little details. And then it's very, very expensive because they're all handmade and it, you know, it costs what it costs. But even in the basic version, the level of physicality that really threw me, that really convinced me that they knew what they were doing was the ships, to move them, you flick them, but they have nacelles, they have engine ports. You can only flick them from where the engines are. So there are fighter wings. Fighter wings you can flick from any direction because they're fighter wings. Bomber wings, on the other hand, are comparatively clumsy. You can only flick them from the rear. Similarly, there are slightly more maneuverable ships where the where the flickable area of the ship constitutes roughly the back third, and then there are clumsier ships that are harder to flick, and it's only along the back. Anyway, subtle details like that. As Walker says, hardly any rules grit at all, but nonetheless manages to improve, just as I was talking about, the toyetic factor of the game, as well as the decision space, as well as balancing of different ship types to make them feel different from each other. Uh, Flickfleet is is utterly marvelous at all these things. The one problem that I have with Flickfleet is that I don't find all the scenarios equally compelling. We were playing from Xeno Wars, which was the... Uh, latest sort of expand alone set. Uh, there's one that just finished crowdfunding that's going to be elaborating on the Pirates faction. We played twice in succession. One was a scenario done actually by my friend Woogie. I'm I'm convinced I played it badly, and so I'd be possibly interested in going, coming back to it. It might be more interesting if I was smart and not stupid. And then I just said, screw it, we're just going to give points and buy our, buy our ships. That scenario was much better. Agreed. And so in Flick Fleet, you have your little armada of ships. 
you get to, you take turns back and forth activating each ship. And every time you activate a ship, you get to activate two systems, be it the propulsion or the engineering to repair things or the weapon systems. And then you get to flick the, the whatever dice the weapon system happens to be. It could be nukes, which is D6s, which will always damage as long as you hit the other ship. Or you get to flick D10s. And sometimes it's usually a lot of D10s because anything higher than a six on a D10 will miss. Because... We'll miss a capital ship uh, in that it will bounce off their armor. It will, however, always hit a fighter wing or a bomber wing because they are pequeño and 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 chibi and other foreign words for small uh, and easy to damage. Yes, because they don't have sheets and all the sheets ha- have the systems laid out one through six. So anything out of that range is a miss. Unless you have your shields up, then you lose shields no matter what. And then once you're down to shields, it's time to blow up. I am a sucker for any game where you get to fly big spaceships and they feel like big spaceships. You get to do a little bit of managing systems. So they don't, it's not just about moving them around and then rolling to hit, but you have to worry a little bit about what systems are active, what systems you want to manage. So I love Flick Fleet. I love Talon. The one time I played Star Wars Armada, I thought that was pretty cool as well. Although at that point you're kind of getting into a money pit that's not even well supported anymore. So there's that. And there's even an upcoming game in the Infinity Universe called Acheron's Call uh, that I have pledged for because I'm an idiot and not smart with money. But anything that involves capital ships in space that feel like capital ships, I'm not asking to be cumbersome, but I just like to be able to do have a little bit of, uh, of fun managing systems. I was crushingly disappointed when that uh, battleship knockoff space game was so disappointing. Do you remember that? Yes. It was by some of the same people who did Heroescape, and it had kind of pretty-looking starships, but it, it just didn't do anything for me. Anyway. That oh. is Flick Fleet, designed by Jackson Pope and Paul Wilcox, and put out by Eurydice Games. Yeah, very expensive, hard to find, highly, highly, highly recommended. I always have a blast playing Flick Fleet, and I'm very disappointed that we don't get to play it more often. Agreed. We got to have a sort of mini games festival featuring the works of a single designer. And I'll say that there are not a whole lot of designers working today where we would feel comfortable doing that, both in terms of the variety of output that they have that would lead you to feel like you had like a satisfying series of different kinds of games, as well as overall level of quality. So a couple of names came to mind. I mean, obviously, Reiner Knizia, clearly, uh, obviously for us, David Thompson, uh, maybe Christian Amundsen Ostby. Anyway, a variety of names come to mind. But this time we played three games, one after the other, all by Casper Lapp. And the... Uh, first game we played by Casper Lap was God's Love Dinosaurs. And God's Love Dinosaurs is a game I very foolishly traded away and decided, you know, it, it was one of those things that I, I burned with regret and I decided to get back. The theming is marvelous. You all play as gods. You're all making ecosystems, but you don't care about anything but dinosaurs. You just want to make a universe and a planet that exists exclusively to maximize the number of dinosaurs. But despite the incredible paucity of rules, there's actually a surprisingly sophisticated element of of balancing because you need prey animals and then there are predators and you need prey animals around so that the predators can multiply and you want the predators to multiply so they can then be eaten by dinosaurs. But you can't eat too much of anything at any time because then you'll them to be extinct, and then you'll be less efficient at producing, wait for it, more dinosaurs. So even the humble rat, bunny, and frog is very relevant to the proliferation of T-Rexes, which is what you want in order to win God's Love Dinosaurs. And we played five players, and it, and it, and it t- turns along at a great pace. 
the flow is real as we say, and you take tiles and you add tiles to your little mini map. And so all of the different little creatures have their own little biome. And when you activate, when a row becomes empty, they activate and they reproduce. And like Mark said, it's this very interesting decision space where you need to eat just, just enough and you don't want to lose out on any of the poor little bunnies. And the trade-offs, I, I find, look, it's not the deepest thing in the world, but I do find the trade-offs very engaging because you have to look at what kind of tile you want, which may come with an animal to expand your biome or maybe more mountains for your dinosaurs to live in. But by the same token, you have a vested interest in the animals activating in a certain order. It's like, I don't want the bunnies to activate now because either all my bunny spaces are full or I don't, ha don't have any bunnies or what have you. And so maybe I really want that tile, but it's in the bunny column. And if I help empty the bunny column, then the timing is going to be bad for me. Even in five players where you have the least amount of control over the shared tile display in Gods of Dinosaurs, I thought it worked out very, very well. And as you say, since when the animals activate, everyone activates all their animals of that type. You're still involved in other people's turns, albeit not necessarily in terms of direct player interaction. So I, I would happily put Gods of Dinosaurs as one of those games that I would take to show to non-hobbyists or uh, in, in flexible context because it's got a great theme. The, the components are nice and colorful and everyone loves dinosaurs, including gods. It's true. Granted, the theological implications might strike some people as potentially problematic, but look, just open your head. The cosmology makes perfect sense. Uh, you look, open the books. What was it like 300 years ago there was dinosaurs? Everything will be fine. Yeah, it was in um, the book of uh, Judith. The book and of Judith and, and, and Esther. Judith and Esther, little in fact, both dinosaurs. It's true. Yeah, there the, you go. The other great decision space in this game is uh, there's a you start the game with a dinosaur, and there's also a dinosaur that goes along the bottom of the tracks. Like so, so when you activate the track that has a dinosaur on it, then your dinosaur activates, and the number of predators it eats is the number of points. And then you have this key decision to make, and the points are eggs. And there's a key decision to make: Am I going to hatch one of these eggs for when the dinosaurs activate? I get to move around two dinosaurs, but it's sort of like a double-edged sword because both of these dinosaurs must eat or else they die. So you got to sort of balance out how many dinosaurs you have moving around at once. Great little game. Yeah, I highly recommend Gods of Dinosaurs. I I think it, it can work with pretty much any crowd, any level of hobbyist experience. It's really good. It's put out by Pandasaurus Games. What was the next Casper Lap game we played, Walker? We found out that Dewey had not played That's Not a Hat. And that could awful not stand. fact could not stand. So we pulled out That's Not a Hat. It is a fantastic memory game where you think it's not a game until it really is. And once again, had a ton of fun. I'm still having stress dreams about flashlights. <laughs> I just couldn't. Sure enough, I lost track of things very early on. Like, like flashlights? Like specifically a flashlight. And I just kept thinking that I was being passed flashlights. There's just, there was flashlights. No, there. Okay, look. This is one of those times where you start with an axiom, like a fixed point in reality, and try to try to base that. Kind of like Descartes' cogito ergo sum. You know, you start with some bedrock principle. The bedrock principle that I start with is there was a flashlight, and then I spun that out into thinking that everything was a potential flashlight. That was a problem. However, we did discuss that the scoring conditions we are were vaguely unsatisfied by. Because the game of That's Not a Hat ends once someone has acquired three points. Points are bad. And then whoever has the fewest points wins. Generally speaking, uh, this th there are two problems with this overall metric in our experience. Number one, 
there is a high likelihood of several-way tie. And number two, once you have acquired one point, you're probably done. <laughs> so it, the, the, if you care about things from a competitive aspect, which again, we don't really, the moment you've got your first point, you're out of the running. There's no way you're going to win. We, we wondered whether it might be better to adopt a sort of cockroach poker style of play where there's only one loser and then everyone else wins. I don't know. Food for thought. Speaking of the cockroach poker, there was a point near the end there where I was trying to, I was debating whether or not to like sort of adapt some cockroach poker uh, strategies. Oh, really? Well, like I said, where where I knew, where I I knew it was a pizza, but I knew the one person was struggling about what the cards were. Oh my goodness. And I was, and I was debating whether or not just to claim it was something else. Just to mess them up further down the road. Well, because I was hoping that the next person knew that it was a pizza. And then when... And when that person passed it as a pizza, would then call him out on it. Or even better, I, I think you're underestimating the ripple effects of, of this possible move. Because then it might just confuse everyone at the table and throw everyone off. True. Because you you were absolutely in your element in this game of That's Not a Hat. You were perfectly confident and perfectly right. It was marvelous. <laughs> you, I don't know, did you know what things across the table were? Or were you just managing your own corner? I was managing my own corner. Okay, because you... It seemed effortless, <laughs> whereas every turn I would have said, "Okay, stop! Everyone, shut up! I need to." I was only tracking three three details, but I even couldn't get that right, and I needed total silence to organize things in my head. And I still ended up thinking that everything was a flashlight. And it really does have a nice sort of balance between because there's some cards are the writing because you pass them in different directions, dep- like depending on the arrows on the back of the cards. And some of the cards have white writing, and some have black writing. So sometimes it just works out that there's a nice balance of those two colors, and it just helps you track a little bit more yes. than you normally could. It is one of the few things that you can help rely on other than just blunt memory, yes. And that is not a hat. And also by Casper Lab, put out by Ravensburger. And then we rounded it off with Fun Facts. This one's put out by Repost Production because they put out a fantastic line of party games. And also by Casper Lap. In Fun Facts, you sort of pose wits and wagers types questions, ones that can be ranked in a certain order. All of them have a numerical answer, yes. The the first player puts their their sort of marker out on the board. Face down. Face down with their hidden answer. And then as it goes around the table, everyone else writes down their answers and puts them in the order where they think it ranks as a table. And these are all... I say personal. They're not personal in the sense of of deeply private. They're just personal questions in that they relate to everyone at the table. So one that I thought was kind of okay was how much money would it take for you to agree to go and do research for a year at a remote base in Antarctica? Uh, Another one which actually provoked a fair amount of conversation was on a scale of zero to 100, how well do you think you are dressed right now? This is when we discovered... (laughs) That we all were operating on radically different conceptions about what well-dressed means. <laughs> uh, th- I, I specifically asked Dewey at the outset. This was this was cheating. This is borderline cheating, but it was also a joke. I said to Dewey, Dewey, you're wearing Crocs today, right? And he said, yes. I thought that would say something. Didn't Dewey rank himself at like 55 out of 100? Well, it all depends on like where you like throw the scale. Of course. You, it's think, highly subjective. Exactly, yeah. and that's what makes it fun, right? Do you throw the scale on the world in general, or do you throw it on the table? So you look at the person at the table who's the best dressed and put them at in the hundred zone, and then the worst dressed at zero, and then rank yourself in in just that chart. Or are you going to 
give yourself the overall rank chart. It's it's very interesting. Look, I'm no Tim Gunn. All right, Lord knows. <laughs> I lack the temperament, the knowledge, the style, the beautiful voice, the hair. Oh my goodness, the hair. But can we not agree that the monomaniacal focus on Crocs as an exclusive piece of footwear definitely costs you more than 45 points off the top, regardless of where you start? 100%. Okay, because I def- <laughs> people were shocked at, I, I put myself at uh, 45 out of 100, and I'm like, yeah, because nothing I'm wearing fits. Yeah, but dre- my belt is falling apart. Dress my shirt isn't tucked in. Yeah, but it's a, it was a dress shirt. It wasn't right? a dress shirt. Just so, because so it's got it a collar be... and buttons doesn't make it a dress so, shirt. So it could, you know, out, you know, the, it's like sort of the, the Crocs thing, right? Crocs, you know, drops you down. Yeah. Dress shirt might might bump you up. Not a, a dress shirt. Anyway. Wow. Okay. Yeah. yeah. Now, <clears throat> I will merely point out you are much bigger on fun facts than I am. Uh, you tend to find the questions more interesting than I do. I find the level of subjectivity involved in a lot of the questions. I don't object to the subjectivity necessarily, but I don't think it's as interesting as the kind of subjectivity relying on, say, green team wins, right? And the discussions that we've had pursuant to many of the questions in green team wins, I found A, more interesting, and B, more frequent. Like, for example, I I emphasized that I thought of the questions that we played in Fun Facts, one of the more interesting ones was how much money would it take to get you to do a year of research? We didn't really have much to talk about after that. It's like, yeah, that tracks. I think the only surprising answer, somebody said they do it for 75 grand, which was unusual. Maybe they're thinking about how many vacation there may be, and this just... Oh, sure. Maybe they've always wanted to go. Okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah, 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 yeah. Fair enough, fair enough. Uh, No, not... And just to be clear... Uh, for a lot of people, $75,000 is an impossible quantity of money. And that I completely respect. Uh, but for me, uh, I would never consent to do such a thing. I, I almost was tempted to put infinite, but no. Anyway, uh, it's just I find that Green Team Wins is A, uh, more predictable because it's it's operating on a, a relatively more clear paradigm. Like a question get got flipped up in Fun Facts and people would say, well, what's the criterion for X? What's the criterion for Y? And the only answer is to shrug and say, well, whatever the person thinks it means. Whereas Green Team Wins seems to have everyone on the same page more often and produce more interesting results. Yeah. I just I just prefer the questions in Green Team Wins. What True, can I say? and it also works. You can play Green Team Wins with strangers, whereas uh, I, I, really, I really feel fun facts would fall apart with complete strangers. Yeah, I also wonder, though, if, again, none of the questions are deeply private. That I've encountered so far. I haven't gone through the entire deck. But, for example, I could see some groups, even of friends, not feeling very comfortable ranking themselves in comparison to the friends. For, for example, how well-dressed you are right now, right? True. I don't know if, if if every group would survive the, really? You think you're at a... For-? Like, we can make fun of Dewey and say we... And, and I could tell him... Dewey, I think your 55 is wildly optimistic, and then make fun of him to his face. There are lots of people I know, lots of friends I have, where I would not feel comfortable doing that. And there's other quite, there was, I'm trying to think, there's a couple that we had talked about or that were interesting. There's one, how many homes have you lived in? I didn't find that particularly Things interesting. Things like that. I'm just saying, not so much interesting, it's just interesting facts to know about your friends, is what I meant. Eh. Agree to disagree. I, as I said, I just don't find that particularly interesting. And that rounded off our Casper Lap. Uh, it was the end of our lap. Uh, yes. Just around so. his catalog. Just so. Walker showed me Sail. Sail is a two-player cooperative quirky trick-taking game. 
And it, it comes from Japan, but then again, I repeat myself. Haha. Designed by Aki Yamakoryu and Korzu Yusei, published by AllPlay, which used to be BoardGameTables.com, uh, pursuant to uh, successful crowdfunding. And the way that it works is there's this board, and you've got a ship, and there are some spaces you can't go into, and there are some spaces you, you have to go into. And it's all on all the movements on a bias. And every time you win a trick, you look to see what the combination of cards were. And there are a variety of effects. The most common effect, or certainly the most common good effect, is to move the ship. And you move towards whoever happened to win the trick. And the round ends immediately once somebody's won four tricks. So you're immediately in a position where you care about who wins the trick and how. Which makes for some surprisingly interesting trade-offs. And for some surprisingly interesting inferences about what your, what your colleague, what your partner, because it's, again, a co-op, has. You're figuring, well, I'll lead this card. Oh, wait, but what do they have in their hand? Uh, they'll be, okay, I don't think they're void in this color, so they'll have to play that. Oh, but that's a terrible combination. That doesn't get us anywhere. Okay, so I have to make sure that they go void before I lead this card. And In other words, the classic sort of trade-offs involved in a trick-taking game, but nonetheless in a very, very charming visual presentation of sort of a nautical theme. And in a very, very tiny box, and like a lot of quirky, clever trick-taking games from Japan, I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoyed it. Yeah, the art was very nice. The color palette, a little bit similar, but not really any problems discerning one card from another. You had all sorts of different player powers that you could get. And I'm looking forward to playing more, like different scenarios, different ways to set up the maps. You were initially concerned that there might not be enough there. You weren't, when you gave the rules explanation, you gave kind of a shrug as to say, Meh. well, I, you know, you never know, right? <laughs> we, it's like a trick taking game, you know, is it going to be just like a straight up sort of, you know, or is there going to be like a hook? Is it just going to be sure. more trick taking or is there going to be interesting hooks? To... Is that a microaggression against a certain pirate captain? Yes. Okay. Just so. I, I, I think this may be my favorite two player trick taking game. Uh, I, I certainly preferred it to Fox in the Forest. I don't have anything against Fox in the Forest, but I just really liked how the map worked and how the timing considerations were so pointed by virtue of the necessity of... Like, I I frequently in competitive trick-taking games feel that pressure of, I need to lose the lead, I need to lose the lead, I need to lose the lead. And the way that it, that is internalized in sale uh, struck me as very novel and very pointed. And it really required me to make some inferences about what my partner had in ways that I hadn't been made to do in other co-op trick-taking games recently. So, like you said, best two-player co-op or just best two-player? I can't remember playing a better two-player trick-taking game. Gotcha. I still enjoy Jekyll and Hyde. And even their new one, the Van Helsing one, is very good as well. So maybe I'll have to force you back onto the interwebs to play those. <laughs> well, no, I've, I've played Jekyll and, uh, Jekyll and Hyde a couple of times. I like it, uh, I but I, I prefer Sale. I haven't tried the... Um, I'm, I'm sorry, you just said what it was. Van Helsing. I have not tried the, Val, the Van Helsing one, but I am curious. And is, is Van Helsing on... It is on BGA's. BGA? On that... that that online gaming provider. Okay, is the, let, let, let us let us cut the subtle code language that is very very difficult to penetrate. Is it on alpha or is it not? That I'd have to check. Okay, <laughs> and there's a Scotland Yard one that I have no idea about 
either. All by the same, by Mondo as well. So all by I the see. same. So I'll need to check out that one as well. I've enjoyed all of them. I am endlessly pleased by these quirky little trick-taking games. I think it's somewhat telling that I've never really felt the need to go back. The one that's probably crawled into my head the most is Ghosts of Christmas. Not co-op, not two-player. Just in terms of how it you know breaks open your brain and your the timing considerations cause you to get completely overwhelmed, but in an enjoyable way. But I, I, I am looking forward to going back to sale. I would happily play sale again. So on the subject of playing games from the same designer, this Saturday we streamed two games by Reiner Knizia. One we'll be talking about later. And the other was Sunrise Lane, put out by Horrible Guild. And it is a later Reiner Knizia game. It was put out once before as sort of a reprint or re-implementation of a game. Yeah, it was originally Rondo. And so... On your turn, you're either drawing cards or you're playing cards. And you can play the most The most cards you're going to have in your hand would be five. And then there's this grid of colored squares that have numbers. You know, they look like dice. And so there's numbers one through five. And you need to trace a path because you have colored cards in your hand. And you have to, every card must be adjacent to the, so you have to trace a path. Because if you play a blue, then the next one has to be adjacent to that blue one. And you're putting out houses. And depending on how many cards you play, if it was a five square, blue square, and you played two blue cards, then you'd get 10 points, two times five. So you're just checking out the map, deciding where to start, that you're going to maximize points with the colored cards you have in your hand. Sometimes it was quite random because you just happened to draw the cards you needed, or someone just opened up a part of the map that let you score a bunch of points. But you sort of have to see, sort of anticipate what you're leaving because every turn you can just discard any color to put in a park. So say at the end of your turn, you're ending your turn and you're leaving open a five or a four, you can just discard one of the cards that you couldn't use and then cover that space of the park. So you're not leaving it open for someone else. And then at the end of the game, there is scoring for tallest buildings in some districts and the most houses in some other districts and, uh, the long, the biggest group of a certain his biggest group of buildings. And it, it, it was perfectly fine for the time it took to play and teach it. I thought Sunrise Lane was perfectly charming. I'm beginning to suspect that Reiner Knizia has a problem or an objection to the six face on the standard die because he's made a whole bunch of dice games where there's no six. Instead, there's something else. And now you're saying he had the all these dice pictures and he tops out at six. Tops out at five. Tops, sorry, yeah, tops yeah, out at five no. and precludes the six. I think, I, I think he may have a problem with the, I think, I think he just doesn't like the six. Maybe so. a six kicked his dog sometime. The only exception, actually, where instead of omitting the six, he omits the one that I can think of offhand. I'm sure there are tons. He's designed so many dice games. Is Llama Dice. There's ones in Llama Dice. Remember, all the dice are different. Oh, you're right. I'm very sorry. That's okay. Okay, I'm just going to edit this out so I don't yeah. sound so stupid. I, that'd be a good idea. I, I, yeah, I'm just I thought gonna... maybe you were going somewhere else. I said he's not going to talk about Lama Dice. No, anymore. no, no. You're right. I completely forgot that there are ones in Lama Dice, but don't worry. I'm just going to memory hole this, and no one's ever going to know that I was so incredibly stupid. Yeah, there we go. I'll just cut it out like that 10-minute digression that you had before about Ottomans. Nice. I don't know why you spent so much time talking about footrests. Well, I, I just, trying to stop I just you, but... really like them, Mark. Okay, that's fair. I got to play some more Sky Team on Board Game Arena. They sort of added more missions that you could do. So I jumped on with our good friend Sam, and we ran through some of the new missions. Sam from Board Game Duel. Just so. And uh, yeah, it was great. It was a slalom through the mountains with no engines. We were just gliding. 
I don't think you're supposed to slalom commercial jetliners. And, and of course, you know, the runway was completely iced over. And so, yeah, it led to like, and so when the, the engines are stalled out, you'll you normally get to play four dice. So now you only get to play three dice a turn. And uh, you normally have breaks that you must, you know, you want to get right to the end. Uh, but now there's two spaces for the dice and both players must put those dice in, in the same turn. Oh, wow. So four. It was already three, hard four, to get the brakes yeah, activated, but that's exactly. Yeah, wow. Yeah. So it was lots of fun. We, we, we managed to do it. Good. And yeah, I'm just enjoying Sky Team every time I play it. It is a great cooperative sort of hidden information game. You know, with all these great two-player games, especially a lot of quick ones that we could cycle through, uh, we need to choose a couple of people in our acquaintance and just find a way to deeply offend them on a personal level. Agreed. Because uninviting people seems rude. We, but if we could like somehow shock them to their very core and make them hate us, that I think would make things easier. We've tried. We've insulted their mothers on on a great number of occasions. I know. And it still does not dissuade them from coming. The creepy part is when they agree with us. I know. Weird, yeah. right? Those were the games we played last week. And now a brief break while we pay some bills. It's great that ExpressVPN protects your privacy and security online, but you can also use ExpressVPN to unlock movies and shows that are only available in other countries. It's so simple, even a gibbon could do it. ExpressVPN lets you control where you want sites to think you're located. You can choose from over 100 different countries. I've been using ExpressVPN to check out Sympathy for Mr. Vengeance on South Korean Netflix, Friends and the American version of The Office on UK Netflix, Back to Canada for Sound of Metal, and luxuriating in the one and only Tim Riggins with US Netflix and Friday Night Lights. But it's not just Netflix. ExpressVPN works with any streaming service. Hulu, BBC iPlayer, YouTube, you name it. There are hundreds of VPNs out there, but the reason I love ExpressVPN is because it is so fast and unobtrusive. It also works on all your devices, phones, media consoles, smart TVs, and more. So if you want to get access to hundreds of new shows, use my link right now, expressvpn.com slash games, and you can get an extra three months of ExpressVPN for free. That's expressvpn.com slash games. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. And now back with some news that doesn't matter. Mark, we like dexterity games. We oh, have, do we ever. We have played Tokyo Highway. Yes. We haven't played it a lot, but now there's going to be an expansion called Rainbow City. This is put out by Itten, so maybe this will get it back to the table for us. Who knows? You liked Ice Cool. I was kind of chilled on it. I see what you did there. That was some top-class wordplay. <sighs> I know. That's that's why we're called professionals, Mark. Um, so it's called Ice Cool Wizards. So they're like, they added some sort of card system in there, and now you're, you're wand-wielding penguins. So okay. It's sort of a standalone game. I'm still waiting for Iron Forest. I'm beginning to suspect that it may be approaching vaporware. Could be. Yeah. So the uh, Ice Cools by Brain Games. So Gaia... Guy Project, they promised expansions a long, long time ago, but once again, it's the news is out. They say released late 2024, we will finally get a Gaia Project expansion. Do you know what's going to be in it? Uh, no. 
while it passes any prologue, if it's like the various expansions they've done to Terra Mystica, I suspect it's just going to be more, more races, factions. Yeah. 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 More races, maybe some funky map tiles to sort of mix it up, maybe. It's a good point. I mean, it is more modular. They can mess with the map, the map if, if they want to. I'm still vaguely curious and cautiously optimistic about Age of Innovation because every modification of the basic system has brought the fundamental game system closer and closer to something I quite like. So Terramistica, I was frustrated by in a number of ways. I preferred Gaia Project, but it didn't quite get me there. Uh, I liked... I completely forgot the generic... Age of Innovation? No, Age of Innovation is the latest one. Okay, yeah. There was a previous... Was it Terra Incognita? Oh, like just Terra Nova? Terra Nova, thank you. (laughs) See, the... The, the titling definitely could use some work. Uh, Terra Nova, I enjoyed more than than Gaia Project. And maybe innovation will finally, on the fourth try, be things like, now, I, I forgive you for your tracks. <laughs> we love Devier Games. They have one that the artwork is really appealing to me. It's going to be coming out soon. Soon means who knows when. It looks like a smaller box game. It is called Sand. It looks very interesting, Mark. Okay. I hope you enjoy it. There are a lot of reprints on crowdfunding right now that uh, strike my fancy. One of them is my Alley Cat Games. They're going to be reprinting Kalamala. We've talked about this before. This is by Fabio Lopiano. It is, our, it is uh, one of our favorite Fabio Lopiano designs. I probably prefer it to Audubon. Walker probably prefers Audubon over Kalamala. But whatever. We like both of them. Fabio Lopiano puts out interesting games. And Kalamala was the first one that brought him to our attention. They've redone the graphic design. I, I think, again, it, it looks very nice. And I am hoping that this gets Kalamala into the hands of more people. And Alley Cat is thus far been a solid publisher, and I'm happy to support them on crowdfunding. Hey, you're telling me how excited you are for the neoprene mat. I am not ex- That is a lie, Walker. That is, see, there's a truth of the matter, and you have deliberately said the thing that is not true. That is what we call a lie. Call it content. I don't. <laughs> <laughs> I stand corrected. <laughs> Uh, the other reprint that is currently on, although we're, we're going to be talking about this more lately, uh, later, I suppose, is from All Play, again, the new uh, branding of BoardGameTables.com, which is Through the Desert, which is being reprinted, along with two games that are being published for the first time, A Message from the Stars, which is a deduction game, and Switchbacks, which is a tile-laying game. Uh, I There's some expansions. I don't know. Yeah, we'll talk about that later. Yeah, oh, we'll talk. Okay, we'll talk. Yeah. There's four sort of modular expansions. Speaking of crowdfunding, there's a another like sort of double project. This is called My Favorite Things and the String Railway. This is by Play for Keeps. I'm mostly interested in the My Favorite Things. So everyone sort of makes a deck of trick-taking cards. So Mark could have his favorite sci-fi movies. I might have my favorite Seinfeld characters. And I rank them, you know, one through five and then the one I hate. So we now have made our own, not our own decks, but we each have made decks. Now we all pass our decks to the right, and but they have no idea... Like in behind the cards, it will show our rank, but they won't be able to see them. So now we have the hand of the person's cards and we sort of have to play them, trying to guess on which ones are their favorites and how they're ranked. Right. And so I've handed Edge of Tomorrow to somebody. They don't know how much I like Edge of Tomorrow. They just know that it's that it's ranked somewhere in my favorite sci-fi films. Edge of Tomorrow is great, by the way. I guess it would depend on what other movies I wrote down. But Exactly. If you so, haven't seen Edge of Tomorrow, you should see Edge of Tomorrow. I agree. It's yeah. It's, Tom Cruise, wow. Well, more Emily Blunt, but sure. True. It's I've, it's a, game, a movie I've watched twice. Anyway. Yeah, I've, moved, I've watched it several times. Great movie. 
And a game, once again, that I have so much information on, Diablo, Mark. They're, they're going to come out with an actual Diablo board game. Really? Yes. So Fascinating. It's going to be one of these like sort of dual releases, the role-playing system and a tabletop board game at the same time. Huh. Who knows when, who knows how, Diablo. One of my favorite quirky designers from the Avalon Hill days, Richard Hamblin, uh, was notorious for having made a game called Magic Realm, a game that has thus far had three different rule books, uh, the shortest of which was uh, 42 pages, as I recall. Uh, the more common rule books are in excess of 70 pages, and even then there's some disagreement about how the game is to be actually played. I have a great deal of enthusiasm for Magic Realm. It has been largely obsoleted in modern gameplay by things like Mage Knight or even other uh, fantasy games that are, say, you know, slightly more transparent. But having internalized the system, I have a certain degree of enthusiasm for its odd eccentricities. And another group of people that has an enthusiasm for its odd eccentricities are the people at Mr. B Games, who are currently crowdfunding a game called Dragons Down. They have the audacity to say, hey, we're releasing this big fantasy game that looks like and is inspired by Magic Realm. I'm like, wow, that kind of courage is typically not seen outside the realm of rodeo clowns. And I am happy uh, to throw some money into this pit for you. <laughs> True, usually we would not associate something with a game like that. You know, it's not sort of like, I guess, for the member berries? The it's probably maybe? for the member berries. It's prob they probably reason that there are just enough idiots like me who have enough nostalgia and or are perversely intrigued by what they're going to do. <laughs> like I, yeah. I, This is mostly out of a strange sense of fascination uh, as well as begrudging admiration. So like, you know, watching a train wreck, not being able to look away, gotcha. I don't even know a train wreck, but it's, <laughs> let me let me put it this way. It's somebody who's dressed like Evil Knievel, but who is not Evil Knievel about to try something that Evil Knievel once did. And you're like, I don't know who this guy is, but I'm, I'm going to watch. Gotcha. That's that I think is the the energy behind my pledge of Dragons Down by Mr. B Games. The only other experience that I've had with Mr. B Games has been Hellenica, which was their big box Civ thing, which was okay. It was it was kind of interesting. Had some ideas, and at least it was more historically focused than a lot of other Civ type stuff. And I'm I'm a sucker for that. At so. least they have a history. Yes. This is not the first thing they've done. They've, they've been very reliable in terms of fulfilling the crowdfunding projects. Yeah, if this were some new company of a bunch of people who just really, really like Magic Realm, I don't think even my perverse fascination would get me to pledging. Uh, I don't. Rec this is one of those classic instances, to quote Robert Bolt, where I do not recommend it, I merely point it out. That is Dragons Down by Mr. B Games. That is the news and why it doesn't matter. Now onto our feature game, which is Through the Desert. Through the Desert is a two-to-five-player tile-laying game where the tiles are pastel camels. Designed by Reiner Knizia, originally published by Cosmos in 1998. And once again, I'd just like to point out that the three-year span between 1997 and 1999 for Reiner Knizia is probably the single greatest three years of output of any board game designer ever. Tigers and Euphrates Through the Desert, Samurai, Raw, Lost City, Stevenson's Rocket, Shot, and Totten. If you, over the course of an entire career, produce a list of games that good, good on you. And if, and if only, you do it in only, three years... Only two of those games, good on you. Yeah, <laughs> yeah good point. <laughs> but he did all that in three years. And then he kept designing... Yet more great games. So there you go. Anyway, Walker, why don't you give us an unhelpful summary about what we do in Through the Desert? So in Through the Desert, it's as close to Tron Cycles board game that you're going to get. <laughs> so the, 
the board is seated. It's a hexagonal board. It's seated with all sorts of little mini oasis pools and palm trees. And now you all have five leaders out on the board each, all different colored camels and they're all spaced out and then you're going to proceed to place two camels a turn and you cannot place if my green you know caravans over here growing you cannot place a green camel next to it because then we won't know who that camel belongs to well also because it, it, in the rule book it it's, says you're not allowed that's why that's actually more why you gotcha in the, in the book it says you can't yeah thanks no thanks. problem thanks i'm here for and so this is what the whole uh, sort of game is about. It's very much like it's, it's spoiled sister that will come out later, Blue Lagoon, and a lot like Barony, where you're going to force plays. Spoiled sister? I, I don't know. What do you want from me? <laughs> um, uh, very much like Blue Lagoon and Barony, where you're forcing the play of your opponents. You're threatening an area. You're forcing them to make a play there, so you have more opening somewhere else. I love that type of play. That is Through the Desert. Through the Desert is uh, Reiner Knizia's... Well, people often ask him what's the favorite game of yours that you're, you're, you've designed, and he typically gives some sort of prevarication or, uh, or or some kind of attempt to change the subject. Well, they're like my children. I love them all. But he eventually, in many interviews, circles back to Through the Desert. He's done this a couple of different times where he says, I think it's the one that he says it's most like life, in that you have all these pressing priorities, but you can only do so much. And the reason why I think Through the Desert is so perennial is because these trade-offs in terms of tempo, in terms of when am I going to go for what, I'm competing with this person over here for, to get to this oasis sooner and they might block me over here, but I also have to encircle this territory, et cetera, et cetera. There is so little distance between you as a player and the calculation of those trade-offs that it attains a level of simplicity that very, very, very few other hobby games do. And as such the difficulty in making good plays is unhindered by any kind of rules grit, yeah, largely and, speaking. And all those things are fun because you get a big amount of points for joining a caravan to a palm tree and, and, and sneaking your way in or circling around to get there is interesting. Uh, stealing those little pool points from your opponents before they have a chance to get them. That's fun warding off a hole because there are a couple of mountains on the board as well. So, and the hole outside of the board counts as a wall as well. So you can make your caravan strips to, to wall off entire areas, which are going to give you huge points at the end of the game. And sort of completing that is super interesting as well. Because not only that, you get all of the little Oasis tokens that are inside that walled off area too. So sometimes it could be worth a lot of points as well. Yeah. So all of these different things are very fun and enjoyable and sort of just placing that one piece. So it like blocks your opponent's chain off completely because they can't play adjacent to you. And because when you have four or five players, there's so many camels on the board, it's super fun. And on that topic of player count, I think it scales really, really well. Uh, five is not ideal because when you play with five players, each player has to not play in one of the camel colors. And that kind of is fine, but it can lead to some end game shenanigans because the game ends when a kind of color of camel is exhausted. And it is unfortunate to be that fifth player and to say, oh, well, the game's probably going to end when... See, I'm going to name one of the colors of camel here, but we, we can have this discussion later. What what the different colors are called is a matter of great controversy. I have some opinions, and we can talk about that. Uh, I'll say peach. The peach camels are going to determine what ends the game, but I'm not playing in peach, so I guess I'm the guy who can't end the game. 
Now, that's a mild problem. Other than that, it scales real well because the board gets bigger or smaller in a very simple way. The You reduce the number of camels for lower player counts. It's because of the rule simplicity, the visual and tactile appeal of the plastic pastel camels, which has been a constant throughout all of the editions, and that flexibility in terms of player count that has made Through the Desert one of my go-to gateway games for a very, very, very long time. There's only one serious barrier to Through the Desert being what I would say a near-perfect gateway game, and possibly even a near-perfect game generally, and that's how deterministic and determinative the early placements are. It is a little bit like Settlers of Catan in that if you royally mess up the initial setup placements, you can basically be locked out of a lot of the game. Other than that, uh, I don't really have any substantive criticisms of Through the Desert as a game. (laughs) Yeah, I'm wondering... Why they didn't at some point sort of put colored circles on some of the spaces to sort of give you a, you know, first first game sort of placement of leaders. Huh. Just to space them out, you know, just so people get an idea of how consequential the, that initial placement is. Because like I said, this, it's seeded with the little mini pools and the palm trees at the beginning. But then you start taking turns placing out the leaders of each caravan and the very first turn, they all have to be different colors and you're never allowed to put them directly beside the palm trees and you can never put them directly beside another leader. Yeah, you can't put them such that they would score. Yeah. But like Mark said, you could really sort of mess yourself up if you don't understand how the scoring works right from the beginning. Yeah, I don't know if, if it would be possible to have sort of a suggested setup because, for example, it would depend on where the palm trees are. It would it might depend on the relative distribution of pool tokens because starting between two tokens worth three would be very, very different from starting between two tokens worth one. I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think it's a price worth paying. I mean, there are certainly heuristics that you can tell. It's not arcane. Again, the simplicity of Through the Desert is such that you're not going to be worried about people fundamentally misunderstanding the rules or not anticipating how bad the cycle three income phase is going to hit you unless you've sufficiently diversified into cotton or something like that, right? It's You can tell people, look, try not to get yourself in a position where another player is having half the board of themselves. You exactly. Know? Yeah. Like there are rules of thumb that you can very easily apply. It's also the case that as I as I've constantly said on this show and on this episode and other cases, I don't really care about victory too too much. And for new players, so long as they're able to do something, it's not like they're going to get blocked out of the game in terms of actual play. They're never going to be in a position where it's like, well, I can't add a camel here, I can't add a camel there. It's just it'll be less optimal than it might have been otherwise, and some other joker across the table is going to be ro- rolling in points. As I say, it's not a huge deal. It's just the biggest salient criticism I have of a game that is near perfect and borderline review proof. It's so simple and and effective that there's not a whole lot for me to crawl into and critique. Elegant would be the word. Absolutely. Um, Elegance personified. The other thing that new players might want to look at is when someone's blocking off a large area and they're using a particular color to say green, you might not want to also do the same thing with the same color. Do you mean detergent? Detergent, just so. And because that that color will disappear too quickly and the game will end and one of you will not be able to finish your giant wall. Or did you mean lime? It could be jelly lime. I'm not sure. Yes, because... It could be mint toothpaste. Well, a common naming convention, for what it's worth, is sweet tart flavors. 
because the shade of the pastel camels resembles sweet tarts, but then there's one left over, which is kind of a bluish green, and which was initially suggested by a friend of mine to call it detergent. It could be root beer. You remember there was those sweet tarts that had a weird brownish color? They were the root beer ones. Yeah, but they're not sort of bluish green. They're brown. Uh, <laughs> they, anyway. I know they wanted them to be brown. There, <laughs> there's a fair amount of controversy in terms of what to call the various ones. And I I applaud the fact that the new printing by Allplay is going to maintain the, the the pastel camels. For what it is worth from the pictures, I actually kind of prefer the stubby ones from the older editions. Because despite the fact that it's been published by Cosmos and Fantasy Flight a couple of different times, and then there was the Windrider thing, it, it, it's been a whole, like, I mean, it's it's been in and out of print over the course of the past 25 years. The pastel camels have remained a consistency because you need five different player colors and you need five different camel colors. And all of those colors have to be different because you can't have any duplication with respect to that. And typically the response is in pastel camel. And I can comment that a lot of the editions have been multilingual. And as a consequence, if you want to find out how to say pastel camel in eight different languages, let me tell you, Cosmos and Fantasy Flight circa early 21st century have you covered. It's true. And... And they do look a little more realistic. And I like how... The new ones, yes. The new ones. You can package the old ones up nicely. They're almost like tokens because they're so bubbly and bulbous and yep. and, and balloon-like camel. But they're nice to play with. There's, yes. a, great, there's a great tactile appeal. There's, it's, it's... there's just enough detail. Yes. Whereas these ones could get tangled up and take up too much space and maybe detract from, maybe even tip over, which the, the other ones would never do. It is in point of fact the case that through the Desert is so simple and so well done that my friend Woogie and I used to make jokes about ways to ruin it with expansions. Uh, our, our, our favorite one was converting it to an action point system where the facing of the camels mattered in the hex sides. Nice. Where every turn you would get 60 action points. Placing a camel would cost 30. So in your traditional turn, you would place two camels. But you could, instead, you could sacrifice one of the camel placements to reorient your camels, each camel hex side shift would cost one action point. So you could place one camel and rotate 30 times. We never really got to the point of speculating what the camel facing would do, uh, but that's as far as we got to ruining it in that version. We ruined it in, in a number of other ways. With different, We never played things this way. Uh, but uh, I, there's a reason why we were tempted to, to, to think of elaborations, which is why I'm so skeptical, perhaps unreasonably so, of the various expansion modules. Well, some of them are, are basic, you know, games of this ilk, right? In in Through the Desert Now, you only have to touch the palm trees in order to score them. Now, with the salt mines, you have to connect two points together in order to get some points. Yeah, I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm okay with... The... It, it's strange, because I look at the Amun-Ray 20th Century Edition, right? And it had a whole bunch of expansion modules. One of them was designed by Reiner Knizia, and it was the expansion module to make the game more playable with two and three players. And by some accounts, it does a passable job of making what used to be a five-player-only game into a game that scales slightly better. But I will say that the redevelopment work, in terms of changing a lot of the cards, I think makes Amun-Ray a much tighter, much better game. You can't really redevelop through the desert. Ain't no room there. What are you going to do? Make the, 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 the way, introduce a four oasis chit and call it a day? I don't know. I'm glad they didn't feel the need to do that for what it's worth. 
but I, I, I seriously don't know. Like, why bother introducing more scoring criteria or different scoring criteria when the, well, okay, I know why they I was going to say, well, Mark, you see. Yeah, okay. Some people own Through the Desert already. Yes. And they need those people to buy a new copy of Through the Desert. You're right. Ashton answered. <laughs> I was asking a stupid rhetorical question. I appreciate you disabusing me of my naive <laughs> ignorance. Uh, suffice to say, my skepticism is very, very high. I, I would be so skeptical that I, I, I would probably even not want to try them, all things being equal. I'd, I'd probably only try them in a context where but other people some of these look, look fun. Uh, Have you read these yet? Yes. The Crocodile Watch. The Mark. Crocodile so, looks, I really, that's the one I'm most skeptical of, to be frank. So it's like a wild camel. It's a camel that counts as all colors. Yeah. And it slowly marches across the board, and therefore you can't place any camels adjacent to it because it counts as a camel of all colors. There's already tons of blocking in Through so, the Desert. So it's, the blocking that comes from other players. But now you have a a random crocodile that moves from oasis to oasis. Yeah. Yeah. I don't know. <laughs> you see, a game like Zuvatis, where you have a groundskeeper that is controlled by the other players, which is grist for deal-making, that's fine, right? But in the context of Through the Desert, where there's already tons of blocking by other camels... And by other people, and where you have to, where you have to think: Is that other player going to make that move? Are they going to cut me off? I'm much rather a fan of that than some weird crocodile that just marches across the board by itself. It's well, we've had all these other like roll and write and area control games come out after the fact that have all these like Kingdom Builder and all these other things that have these interesting scoring conditions, and so they just want to add these in, like rival nomads, right? So now there'll be more scoring positions for having your camels on the outside of the map or. In, in different, no. if you spell out your name with your camels, <laughs> you get bonus points. All sorts of interesting. If they're things. all facing Mecca, yeah, sure, exactly. No, I, I they might look. <laughs> it's conceivable. It's possible. I just don't think it's likely that any of these would make through the desert better. As we've already identified, the tension and trade-offs exist from the jump. In point of fact, I can't even think of a game that is even remotely as simple as Through the Desert that has the same sense of arc, right? There's a there's a pretty clearly defined beginning opening game where you're snatching up those oasis, oases, you're getting to that uh, uh, you're getting to that oasis before someone else can to the palm tree before somebody else can. You're cutting somebody off because you realize you can. Then the mid game happens. You go for the slightly more distant things. You maybe start thinking about how you're going to close off areas. And then the end game happens, and now suddenly you remember. Generally speaking, this is the way I'm sure more experienced, more expert players would do this from the start. They do this. Wait a minute. Wait a minute. There are ten point bonuses for having the most camels of a given color. I've got nine grape, and someone else has got eight. I've got to defend my grape advantage. I don't, you don't need other scoring conditions, I don't think. Agreed. I can just imagine that it's like you, you've played some, some clever moves to get your wall a certain size and then this crocodile marches <laughs> along and, and you can't finish the wall right. and then the game ends before and then, oh yeah, it would be. Yeah. Yeah. It'd be awful. Yeah. So, I mean, suffice to say, if you haven't played through the desert, there are tons of copies floating around in the secondary market. And any edition is worth playing. Any edition, any language, because it's language independent. If you can't find or don't want to find or you wish to support the new all-play edition, by all means do so. It seems like a fine new edition. I can have my aesthetic preferences and I can have my skepticism about the expansions, but you don't have to get the expansions. You don't have to play by the expansions. That's right. And I'm very glad that someone has brought it back to print because contrary to some other individuals, I don't share the faith that if a game is good enough, it will necessarily be reprinted. 
I've seen far too many things stay out of print for far too long to believe with, with a naive assurance that they will always come back to the market. I'm very much afraid that in the contemporary Eurosphere or the contemporary hobby sphere specifically, that a lot of these, uh, these redesigns are going to get unloved because again, maybe people want more scoring conditions, even in a game that doesn't need it. Maybe it's the case that just because it's old, it'll be looked down. I don't know. I don't want to cast aspersions on my fellow hobbyists. Maybe they have more of an open mind than I do. It's just anytime there's a product that's coming to market that I think deserves to succeed, I get nervous about whether it will. But I wish all the best of luck to all play in their reprint of Through the Desert because it is a timeless, brilliant game and it absolutely deserves to be in, in uh, everyone's hands who wants to try it. Agreed. That's going to do it for this week. Thank you very, very much for joining us for So Very Wrong About Games. If you'd like to get in touch with us, you can find all our contact information at sowronggames.com slash contact, and we read everything you send us. Thank you again for deciding to spend some time with us. We hope you take care, and we'll see you again soon. Peace! And yeah, we're putting through the desert in the cannon. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. You've been listening to So Very Wrong About Games, produced by Michael Walker and edited by Mark Bigney. Special thanks goes to What Does It Eat for generously allowing us to use their most excellent song, FOS, as our theme. You can find them at whatdoesiteat.com. You can reach us by email at soverywrongaboutgames at gmail.com or on Twitter at sowronggames. Thanks very much. See you next time. And always, try to be right, but remember you are so very wrong. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.